Amen. Well, thanks, Colleen. Good morning. I want to say a particular welcome to those of you who are new here this morning. My name is Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really thrilled if you're joining us here for the first time. Thanks in a hot, sweaty August Saturday, Sunday to make your way out here on a Sunday morning. Uh, we are delighted, especially if this is your first time ever or first time in a long time uh, coming to, to church. Or if you're just new to the community and uh, moved to town over the summer, welcome, welcome, welcome. What we are all about here is really simple. It's about connecting, connecting people to God, connecting people to each other. So together we can engage our world for good according to what God's up to in the world. We hope you experience a little bit of all those things here this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're going through a summer-long series the last couple of weeks called Signature Moments. Uh, you've got friends, family members that you know and love, and there's these stories that kind of encapsulate their personality, their characteristics, something you love about them or their quirks. God has his own signature stories, signature moments. We've been going from Genesis today all the way through Revelation, looking at these different signature moments between God and his people, because when God's signature actions meet faithful response from all kinds of different people in all kinds of different places. God's actions and faithful response, it just releases a signature moment into the world. It releases grace, hope, redemption, truth, beauty into a fallen and broken world. And so we invite all of us to sort of step in. We're trying to learn, one, what does God's activity look like? What does God action, God's action look like? Because it's not always intuitive or obvious when God's at work. And then what does faithful response look like? All kinds of different faithful responses that we've been looking at throughout the course of this series. And over the course of the series, we've been, we've been inviting you to tell us what are you seeing and what are you hearing? What stands out to you? We've been collecting it on the uh, bulletin board out there in the lobby. And this is this week's word cloud. It's getting more and more crowded because it's like week nine of the series. You can tell it's getting a little bit full, uh, but here's the God's action is in gold and uh, faithful response that we've been noting over the course of the series is in blue, and you can see kind of God's action. He's his love. He's amazing. Second chance. He's in control. God experiences disappointment, but he's present. He's a weaver. He's accommodating. He's mystery. He's light. He's compassion, and then faithful response and humility, new beginnings, faith, action, consecrate, boldness. Righteousness. See, signature moments don't just happen to individuals. They happen to whole communities, whole families, whole churches. And so we're trying to pay attention. What's God saying to Chatham Community Church summer 2023? Thanks for being a part of what's happening up here on, uh, on the big screen. Now, as we're reading through these stories and, and, and in your own lives, some, there's a thing that happens along the way where uh, God's signature moments seem to come at these sort of two points in our lives. Uh, they, they come at either like really, really high moments or really, really low moments. Like, like God, that we sort of celebrate, recognize God's activity in these moments of pure joy and bliss and celebration and delight. And, the, and, the, and, and God seems to meet us in these places that are very, very challenging and difficult. I remember my first job out of college, it was a, a student ministry. I was working with college students. It was a ministry job. I had to fundraise my whole budget, right? So I had to raise $26,520. That number will be forever burned in my brain. I had to raise $26,520 in pledges and in gifts to, for me to move to the campus in Richmond, Virginia, where I was, I'd been assigned to, to start the work that I felt like God had called me to do. So I spent all summer after my, I graduated, that whole summer was like the most anxious, stressed out summer of my life. I was trying, I was writing letters, I was sending phone calls, family, friends, to raise $26,520 in pledges so I could move to the campus that I'd been assigned to, do the work that I wanted to do and that I felt like God had given me to do. And by God's grace and all kinds of generosity, the money came in, and I remember moving to Richmond, Virginia. 
And I remember all the feels, right? New job, first day on a new job. I was talking to someone today who's starting a new job tomorrow. Like that first day on a new job, right? That I was anxious about it, but it was also like sheer gift of grace that I was in this moment, in this place, about to do the thing that I wanted to do. It was just a beautiful signature moment of God's provision in my life that I will remember my whole life. And then I've had some really, really low moments, really low moments where it's been marked by disappointment, grief, sorrow, and God has just met me with a scripture, a prayer, a friend, intersected my life, moved in a direction that I couldn't have predicted or expected. And if you look over the course of your life and say, I've had a signature moment with God, but it's been in a really high moment or a really low moment, a dark moment, these signature moments happen at these points along the way. But a funny thing can happen if you stay in those places for terribly long. And that is that if you stay in a place of sort of super high highs and everything's going great or super low lows, you can start to develop habits or patterns that actually cut you off from God, even if you have a signature moment to start that moment or as a part of that season. That if you stay in these moments for too deeply or too long, you can start to cultivate habits or practices or behaviors or attitudes that actually undermine your relationship with God. Today we're looking at a couple churches in the book of Revelation. One of them is the church at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus has been through some really, really low moments, and God has met them, and they've persevered, but they've kind of lost their way in the midst of that. And then the other one is the church at Laodicea, and the church at Laodicea is hashtag blessed. They got the money, they're comfortable, they're doing great, God has totally provided for them, and along the way, both these churches have lost their way as a result of sort of living in these really high highs, these really low lows, for a little too long. And so... John writes this letter, Revelation, and the Lord speaks to him, and, and there's a couple of key words. There's a couple of key things that are going to happen. Both churches are going to be sort of rebuked a little bit, challenged by the Lord, and both scriptures, both churches are going to be sort of given these beautiful, wonderful promises. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to see two signature challenges to the spiritual life. Two signature challenges to the signature life. That God's going to speak a word of sort of conviction and a call to repentance. That Jesus, one of Jesus' very first sermons, he just opens up with repent. The kingdom of God is, is near. So repentance is like one of Jesus' favorite words. So it's very signature that Jesus would call the churches to repent. And then there's these beautiful promises woven in that aren't spoken quite this way anywhere else that we're going to soak in and receive. So John opens his, his uh, famous sort of difficult book of Revelation with writing to seven different churches. And there are various stages of challenge. And there's different things going on in these, different in these different churches. Almost all of them have problems that John writes to and addresses that the Lord speaks through. But he opens his address to these churches in Revelation 2 with this beautiful picture of Jesus walking amongst his churches that Colleen read for us earlier. This is Revelation 2, verse 1. Jesus, uh, John writes this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, those seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, those are the seven churches that John's about to write to. And here's the good news. That the picture that John gives us of Jesus walking amongst sort of these stars, these lampstands, is that he holds them very, very tightly. He doesn't just sort of like holds them, he like grips them. Hold, that's the, the Greek word there has a very kind of like a gripping kind of a word. The good news that Jesus is not managing long distance. He's not standing far off. He's not like an absentee landlord. Here's God's signature and here's the first word for us today. And the good news for all of us, God's signature is that Jesus is with us and among us always. He's always with us. He's always among us. 
as John addresses these churches, there's going to be good things and hard things that are said, but he's with us. He is here. He is Lord. Jesus will not leave us or forsake us just like he promised us. Close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes for a second, if you don't mind. Listen, the Lord is here. He is with us. Jesus is the most real thing in this room. If you're watching online, wherever you are, Jesus is the most real thing in that room. He is here to comfort those of you who are grieving. You having a hard week, hard day, hard month, hard summer? The Lord is here to comfort you. Are you here and you're proud and apathetic and ambivalent about spiritual things? He's here to wake you up to the larger reality. Jesus is here. Lord Jesus, we receive your presence. We receive your gift of grace. You are King of kings and Lord of lords and you are present to us. Make us awake to the wide awake reality of your lordship and your goodness. Pray in your name. Amen. Amen and amen. Big part about being a Christian, walking with Jesus. Jesus being with you and with that comes this reality that he sees you better than you see yourself. <laughs> and with that comes gifts of grace and kind of comfort and sometimes correction and rebuke. And we're going to see both of those mixed in to both these two churches. So John opens up with his, his sort of word from the Lord to the church at Ephesus. And this is Revelation 2 starting in verse 2. This is the word to the uh, church at Ephesus. The Lord says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but, they are, not, but are not, have found them false, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So here's what, you, here's what we know about the church at Ephesus. The apostle Paul started it several years before this. He actually was there for two years, a really long time, investing in the church at Ephesus. He leaves. He sends Timothy there, his protege. We looked at Timothy last week to help tend to the church. But after Timothy and Paul leave, apparently... There's false teachers that come along claiming to be apostles and trying to lead the Ephesians astray, trying to get power over the small group of people and say, we know what's going on, follow us. So that if, what the Ephesians have to do is they have to really, really dig. Now, there's no Bible at the time, right? So they've got some letters from Paul that are circulating around the ancient kind of Asian area, kind of Mediterranean area, and they're studying these letters from Paul, and they're listening to these guys who are claiming to be apostles, and they're having to figure out who's telling us the truth. And there's lots of late night debates and heady theological nerdy discussions and they're wrestling and wrestling. And at the end, they decide that what these people are teaching them is not the gospel and that the thing that Paul taught them is the actual work of God in Jesus. And so they sort of, they repudiate, they refuse to follow these people who claim to be apostles. So way to go, Ephesians. You've worked super hard. You've labored super hard. God celebrates it, but here's the turn. Verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So here's what happened, right? In response to the crisis, false teachers, the Ephesians had to get super heady and super nerdy. They're studying and studying and studying. And what happened was they, they got through the crisis. They made the right decision. And what happened was on the other side of the crisis, they stayed in their heads far too long. It became all an academic exercise, right? It became all about theology and stuff and knowing stuff and doing stuff. What happened was the crisis was over, but the crisis behaviors continued. And so the, the Lord is calling the Ephesians to not merely love God with their heads. They've lost the heart. They've forsaken the first love. They've lost that first love. They've lost that passion. This is a good word. 
to those of us who are head-first kind of people, right? Some of you are just head-first kind of people, right? Some of us lead with our heads, some lead with our hearts, some of you lead with your hands, you'd just rather be doing and doing and doing, right? So head, hands, heart, people, like we have, we have different things, and there's nothing wrong with any of it, right? It's like being right or left-handed, it's just how you're wired up. But at the same time, just hear the word from the Lord, especially if you're a head-first kind of a person, that the Lord calls you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And so if you're a head-first kind of person, and I totally appreciate that and, and, and love you for it, just know that the Lord is calling you to live an integrated life where your faith isn't just an, an academic or intellectual exercise. It's actually penetrating your heart, that you're an integrated person, all your head, all your heart, all your spirit, all your body. This call to those of us who are head-first kind of people to be people who love the Lord our God from the heart. But I think this also has application to a, to a broader category of people, not just head-first people. Because here's what's happened in Ephesus. And the people in, in Ephesus, they've dealt with a crisis, right? They've handled a crisis, and they've handled it in a particular way that they needed to handle it, and they've actually solved the problem and done really, really well, right? They passed it. But here's the problem. After the crisis was over, the crisis behavior remained. After the crisis was over, the behavior that got them through the crisis actually is undermining their relationship with God and undermining the relationships with each other. So here's what happens. And I see this on the regular. Sometimes our crisis behaviors that got us through the crisis overstay their welcome. And even after the crisis is over, we continue to live as if we're still in the crisis and it undermines our relationships with each other and with the Lord. Sometimes the crisis behaviors that got us through the crisis stay past the expiration date. They get you through the challenge, get you through the crisis, but you start to habituate behaviors that actually don't serve your life, don't serve your relationships, don't serve you honoring the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself. I see this sometimes with people who've experienced serious abuse as kids. Like the only way they got through their childhood was to armor up and be strong, right? Which totally makes sense to survive as a kid. But what happens when you go into a marriage armored up, pushing people away? Makes for a hard marriage. Makes for a hard relationship with friends. A hard relationship with kids. A hard relationship with bosses and supervisors. You can't live your life armored up. The thing that got you through the crisis doesn't serve you after the crisis. I'll see it sometimes even with adults who, it's not a childhood thing, it's a, in their adult life they've had a really hard experience with a boss or a, an ex-spouse or a, a supervisor or even a church. And what happens is they continue to give that crisis power over them because they continue to relate to the world as if they're constantly in crisis, as if the crisis is still alive and still active. And they've, they've learned all the wrong lessons from the crisis. You can have the wrong, wildly important take home from a crisis. That you can't trust anyone, for example. That you have to be careful, always, on your guard. Not bad things, just a point, it's a part of that that's good, but at some point it becomes diminishing returns. Sometimes people in crisis don't, don't develop habits that are good and kind of get them through the crisis. Sometimes in crisis, we pick up bad habits, don't we? Start drinking a little too much. Start watching a little too much TV, escaping in other ways. Retail therapy, just buy more stuff, buy more stuff, buy more stuff. And those habits, which weren't particularly helpful for you through the crisis, actually, they I mean they were soothing, but they weren't especially life-giving. They are particularly undermining for you after the crisis is over. My friends, is there any one of you that has a crisis in the rearview mirror, maybe all the way back to your childhood, that permanently shaped who you are and how you're living in ways that maybe aren't life-giving for you or those around you? Can you be a, are you aware of something 
that has done damage, that you got through. Man, by God's grace, you got through it, and you made some hard choices and good decisions, and that's not a bad thing. But are there behaviors that have overstayed their welcome, attitudes, practices that have stayed long past the expiration date that are actually undermining your relationship with God and your relationship with people that God calls you to love? The call here from the scriptures that Jesus gives to the Ephesians is this call to a faithful response, which is to repent and do the things you did at first or the new thing that God's inviting you to do next. Repent and do the things you did at first, right? That's the Ephesians. They had this first love for God, this deep love for God that they've lost. So Jesus says, come back to that first love. Now, some of you don't have that first love. Some of you, it's like a new thing, right? For some of you, like, trusting your life to God and turning toward God, that's a whole new thing. So for some of you, it's not about going back to a love you had at first. Some of you, it's a, a new thing God's calling you to do next. And again, the key verb in there is repent. Repent just means you turn, turn away, turn the other direction. The literal Greek is uh, change your mind, to change your mind about what's true, what's right, what's good, about how you're living your life, what, what matters the most to you. Is there a call on your life today to look back in the review mirror and say, I am done giving power over that event to my life today, right? Some of you continue to give power to a really terrible event in your past because you continue to live as if it's still in your present and in your future. And the Lord says, I want you to let, let that be in the past and receive what I have for you now. Walk in the grace and mercy of God. Not, in, not, not armored up, not charged up, but a life of faith, hope, love, wisdom, courage. Repent, do the things at first. Or the new thing God's inviting you to do next. Now mixed into all these sort of challenges that Jesus speaks through John to these churches are these beautiful promises that we don't get almost anywhere else. And here's, here's the beautiful promise to the church at Ephesus as they're getting back to their first love. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now listen, the last time we saw the tree of life take center stage, it's way back in Genesis, Genesis 3, right? So Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. It's all good, good, good. It's paradise. There's one tree that they're not supposed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat from that tree, and God says, if they eat from the tree of life now, now that they've fallen into sin, they would be stuck in sin forever. They'll live forever in a state of sin. That would be miserable. That would be horrible. So God, in his mercy, saves us from the tree of life in Genesis 3. He puts an angel with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. But do you know what's available now that Jesus has died and risen again? Do you know what's happened now that Jesus, who's the second Adam, the new Adam, has come and lived a perfect sinless life and sacrificed his life to forgive your sin and my sin? Do you know what Jesus has done? He has relieved the angel of his guard. The tree of life is now open to all who trust in Jesus. The tree of life, no longer a curse to us. Now a blessing to us because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are washed clean. We're no longer stuck in sin and death. We are now free to eat from the tree of life. And so, my friends, here's God's signature promise. Promise to those of us who persevere, who walk with the Lord, who fight for our spirits and our souls and try to love the Lord our God with all our hearts as best we possibly can. There's a signature promise of eternal life in the redeemed new creation of God to eat from the tree of life and live forever, my friends. Let's follow Jesus together, shall we? Let's follow Jesus together all our days into eternity. What if, we, what if, what, what if the person sitting next to you shows up at the tree of life same time you do? Wouldn't that be great? Say, hey, we worship together in life, and now worship together in the afterlife to be with the Lord forever, to rejoice and celebrate, and we can finally eat from the tree of life, to live forever as redeemed, beautiful, 
humanity the way that God intended. Church at Ephesus went through a crisis, got through the crisis, but have habituated practices that aren't that healthy for them. They had to sort of unlearn some things that they learned about sort of loving God only with their head. They need to love, to get back to their very first love. And so the Lord calls them, go back to loving at first. Remember that you're not constantly in crisis. It is okay now to sort of, sort of dial back a little bit on the head and just not, not to give up on thinking, but to really integrate with your heart as well. And with that comes this beautiful promise that whoever overcomes, whoever perseveres, this promise of access to the tree of life, to share in the life of God forever and ever. Skip over to Revelation 3. You've got the church at Laodicea. And John gives this delightful opener to the church at Laodicea. He gives some descriptions to Jesus that we don't get anywhere else. In Revelation 3.14, he says this. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I was, uh, I was getting lunch a couple years ago with someone who was new to our church, and he wasn't a Christian. He was sort of exploring things. I, we love it when that, if that's you, we're so, so glad you're here. We love people. We have all kinds of people at various places in their spiritual journey. And uh, he was like, he was digging the music. He was digging the message. There was just one problem. He's like, why does it always go back to Jesus? He's like, I got nothing against the guy. That was nice of him to say. But why does it always go back to Jesus? Isn't that a great question? What I felt like was, we're doing our job. And that's what he feels like. If he's someone who's exploring, he's like, How's it come, why does he come back to Jesus? We're doing exactly what we should be doing, right? Listen, my friends, if you're here and you're sort of exploring faith and kind of wrestling with faith or whatever, you're not sure where you are spiritually, and maybe you're asking the same question, why does he keep coming back to Jesus? This is one of the reasons why it all comes back to Jesus. Because here's the deal. You know what God's signature is? God's signature is Jesus. What does God look like? Look at Jesus. What's God's character? Look at Jesus. What is God's purpose in the world? Look at Jesus. God's signature is Jesus. He is the amen, the last word over all things, forever and ever, amen. He is the final word over God's creation. He is the faithful and true witness. Listen, all of Christianity rises or falls on whether or not God is as good as Jesus says he is. Jesus is the faithful witness, i.e., he has seen God, and he reports to us, here's what God looks like, here's what God's character is like, here's what God's sort of activity is like. He shows us, he bears witness to who God the Father actually is, and he is the ruler of God's creation. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. He reigns and rules in this life and into eternity. He holds the whole cosmos in the palm of his hands. That's why we keep coming back to Jesus over and over and over again. And if you're on a journey of trying to figure out if that's where you are, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to where you belong. The one who created you and redeemed you and loves you, he longs to sing his amen over your life and invite you into the tree of life with him forever and ever. Now, the one who's at the center of it all, Jesus, has walked among the Laodiceans, and he's got some critique, some feedback for them that they really need to hear and that we need to hear too. Revelation chapter 3, he writes this, John writes this, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So Laodicea was famously a city that was uh, some distance away from a hot, a hot aqueduct, right, a hot spring. And what they would do was they would, they would aqueduct the hot spring down to Laodicea. Is aqueduct a verb? I don't think it is, but there it is. They aqueducted it. 
The aqueduct did the hot spring water all the way from the far away to Laodicea. So by the time it got to Laodicea, it had cooled off. Hence, it was lukewarm. So they famously had these lukewarm uh, aqueduct waters running all through the city of Laodicea. So poetically, Jesus and, through, and John kind of draw on this and be like, hey, your faith is just like the water you drink every day. It's lukewarm. And what Jesus is saying is, Particularly, he says, I know your deeds. And what he's saying is, you can't pretend to be a Christian on Sunday and not be a Christian all the rest of the week. You can't play at church. It's not what faith looks like. It's not what faith's about. It's not why I died on the cross for sin and rose again from the grave. This is particularly a problem in the South. If you grew up in the South, chances are you grew up going to church. And chances are, many of us had good experiences, right, in churches growing up. But some of us had church experiences where people looked really holy on Sundays and looked really miserable Monday through Saturday. Nothing like Jesus followers. And Jesus says, listen, Jesus says, this is harsh. I would rather you be all in or all out than pretending to be a Christian and not really following me. I'd rather you be hot or cold. I'd rather you be all in or all out than fooling yourself into thinking that you're actually a Christian when actually there's nothing in your life that looks like me. It's a hard, hard word. My friends, beautiful, church-going friends, you playing at church? Jesus this morning in his love has something so much better for you. Not just normal American life, getting by with a little religion on the side, something much, much better. Now, it's interesting to see how wealth and comfort play into all this. He writes this to Laodicea in verse 17. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Listen, because we live in the United States of America, 95% of us are like the top 5 to 10% of wage earners in the world, right? We have, like, and, and there's, there's more money in the United States than there is, like, you know, most of the rest of the globe. And many of us are in those top wage earners. earners. And look, money's a gift. Money is a gift from the Lord. Money is a gift from the Lord and is so, so useful to pay the bills, buy groceries, put a roof over your house, and to be able to give away to make a difference in the world. Money in its proper place, one of the best things that God could give to you, but money, when it gets out of control, when it becomes Lord over your life, you become a slave to it, and it completely can destroy your spiritual life. Jesus knew that money was the biggest competitor for your heart. He spoke so directly about how we could become slaves to money, and here's the reality. They think that they're rich, they're wealthy, but they don't realize that they're poor, blind, and naked. And so here's what happens in, the, in America particularly. Money and comfort can blind us to reality, can't it? We live in a nation that's spiritually drowning in affluence, comfort, and convenience. We live in a nation spiritually drowning in affluence, comfort, and convenience. Again, money not a bad thing until it becomes a god, and then it becomes a terrible thing. Then it becomes... A slave. Why bother with God when I got everything that I need? Why bother with the hard work of going to church and being a part of a community when I can just scroll social media and binge on Netflix at the same time? Why bother making sacrifices for God when my whole life is built around my comfort and my convenience? Isn't that what life's all about? Why bother seeking God's bigger purposes for me when I can just escape, buy more stuff, go on more vacations? Spend my life the way that I want. My friends, 
We are like kids who are so, so hungry, but we're actually hungry for eternal things. And what we do instead is we binge eat on candy and junk food, and we miss the feast God set for us. We are so much of our lives, so much of our culture, so much of our world, pacifying ourselves with Netflix and social media and escapism. When Jesus says, I have a life for you to live. There's a world to save. There are purposes and kingdom purposes, and there's work I prepared in advance for you to do, and it's not merely binging on all these other things. Not that there's anything wrong with entertainment. Again, in its proper place, surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And as our culture and as a nation, we are spiritually drowning in affluence, comfort, and convenience. And so the Lord gives a unique call to those of us who are spiritually drowning in affluence, comfort, and convenience. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a, a, a nerdy podcast, which is one of my favorite things to do, listen to nerdy podcasts. Uh, I was listening to a nerdy podcast, and this guy who was being interviewed was a consultant, and, and he consults both organizations as well as individuals and coaches individuals. And so he says, so what I do when I go to a new person or a new organization is I say, what are your core values? And they often have these beautiful core values, right? And then he said, you know what I do? I completely ignore what they say their core values are, and I say to them, show me your bank statement and your credit card bill. I'll tell you what your core values actually are. Show me your bank statement. Show me your credit card statement. I'll tell you what your core values actually are. See, where we spend our money, that's where our heart already is. It's like a, it's like a barometer, an indicator, right? Like a thermometer. And where we spend our money, it's like, it's like a re- it reinforces sort of what our heart's built around and kind of hooked into. And so what the Lord does here is this really interesting thing. He, he says something that I don't think he says almost anywhere else. He says, I want you to buy stuff from me. Buy from me. Stuff you can't even buy. Stuff you can't buy, right? Buy gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Like, there's this idea of buying things. Right now, gold, the gold, of course, is the, 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 the refined work of grace through Jesus, the, the gift of grace through Jesus. And, of course, the, the, the clothes to wear, the real righteousness, not self-righteousness, like an actual righteousness, a real righteousness that God gives to us to cover our nakedness in the south so we could see spiritually. Now, again, you can't actually buy any of these things, right? You can't actually buy any of these things, right? So just to be clear, we're not saying that you can purchase any of these things, buy any of these things. But here's what the Lord knows. Like, where your treasure is, that's where your heart, that's where your heart will be also. So here's what Jesus says to lukewarm people. Go all in. Lukewarm people, go all in. Go all in financially, go all in with your time. Wherever you give your time and your money and your emotional investment, that's where your heart is. That's who's Lord over your life. And so the scriptures, and Jesus particularly calls us, those of us who wrestle with that lukewarmness, those of us who wrestle with affluence and comfort and convenience, which is sort of the state of America, my friends, the call is to go all in, to find ways to give more of yourself over to the God who gave all of himself to you in Jesus. He says, step in. Find new ways to give more of yourself to my kingdom, my purposes, to, to invest in the things that matter for eternity. And Jesus sort of makes the turn with this church with these words, I, to those whom I love, I have rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person, and they with me. There's something about God's signature here. That is this. Those he loves, he rebukes, disciplines, and challenges, but he doesn't do it from afar. It's not a hit and run. 
right? It's not a discipline and then abandon you. He, he speaks words of grace and correction and he keeps standing at the door of your heart and he keeps knocking over and over and over again. And so, we, and so the call for all of us, the challenge for all of us is to hear the word of the Lord who is always with us. To be willing to hear a hard word of correction and challenge and to trust and believe that he stands at the door and knocks, meaning he is still present with us. He's not hitting and running. He's not dropping a bunch of like angry words on you and then leaving you to kind of wallow in shame and guilt. He says, I want to be here with you. The amen. The faithful and true witness wants to knock on the door of your heart and be present to you. And for some of you this morning, this is your signature moment right here, right now. Jesus stands at the door of your heart knocking today. Maybe you've never let him in before. Jesus stands at the door of your heart and maybe he's knocking on an area of your life that you've been sort of fending him off, walling him off on. Don't want him to come in and mess things up too much or get a hold of things. He stands at the door of your heart. He's knocking. And he says, I want to come in and eat with you. In the first century, whoever you, ate, whoever you ate with, those were your people. Whoever you ate with, those were your people. It was like a big signal of who your people were. Who did you eat with? Jesus says, the Lord of the cosmos says, I want to eat with you right here, right now. I want to be with you. Will you let him in this morning? Is there a door that Jesus is knocking on that you need to open up and let him in? Two churches, two signature challenges. Church at Ephesus all kinds of crisis. They got through the crisis, but they have crisis behaviors that have overstayed the crisis and have habituated sort of a life and a faith that's actually cutting them off from the God they've forgotten their first love. And then the church at Laodicea, they've got too much money, too much wealth, too much affluence, and they think they're fine. And God says, you're not fine, actually. You need to step in and take new steps of faith to buy from me gold refined by fire. Today, the whole thing starts with that that open first step well, that we open the door and let Jesus in as he walks among us and stands among us. That signature challenge, right? That crisis behaviors in the past that got you through the crisis may or may not be serving you right now. Is there something that's happening in your life? Is there a way that you're living right now that's actually like leftovers that needs to be cleaned out? A faithful response is to repent and do the thing you did at first or the new thing that God is inviting you to do next. The signature promise, eternal life, the tree of life, come and eat. Come and rejoice to all those who persevere. God's signature is Jesus, the faithful amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of all God's creation. The signature challenge that money and comfort can't blind us to reality. We can be drowning in comfort and convenience and affluence and miss the spiritual life. That God's signature is that those he loves, he rebukes and he corrects and challenges, but he continues to stand at the door and knock. And the faithful response for all of us is that we might open the door of our hearts and let the king of glory and those are the cadences, two different churches, two different signature challenges. My question for you is, which challenge have you faced? Which correction do you need to be at least open to? Right? Not shut down, but open to. What's the Lord saying to me? And then, which promise is for you? Is there a promise? So much about Jesus, his goodness, his life, his love for you and for me. The amen, the faithful, true witness, the one who's the king of all creation, the one who's always with us to comfort us and to correct us, the, the one who says, I want to come in and sit and eat with you. He's knocking on the door. Is there a promise that you need to hook your life into to continue to grow by faith?
Now, as Jesus closes his words to the Laodiceans, he closes with this scripture and this promise. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So today, we celebrate that Jesus was victorious. Today, we celebrate Jesus was victorious, but the path to victory didn't look especially victorious. The path to victory looked like shame, horror, death. On the night that he was victorious, he's in a small room with his best friends. He breaks bread. He says, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He takes a cup. He says, this cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The path to victory wasn't going to be particularly glorious. It was going to be bloody, shameful. He's betrayed, run through a mock trial, crucified. Disciples scatter in a fog of shock and fear and horror and sadness. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. And so we gather together in his name as he's king of kings, lord of lords, as he is the amen, the faithful and true one. We gather together in his name and we celebrate the meal he gave his disciples on that last night to remember his gift of grace to us. This is the gold refined by fire, his body, his blood, washing us clean. As we move to our time of communion, just a couple of instructions. The, the bread is gluten-free, the cup is grape juice, so everyone's invited to that. We're going to uh, move to a song of worship. We're going to invite you to go to the, the stations whenever you are ready. And then I'm going to invite you to bring the elements back to your seats, and we'll eat and drink together. A word about communion, and that is that this, this is a, the meal that Jesus gave us. This is his table. It's not Chatham Community Church's table. So if you belong to Jesus, if you've been baptized in his name, then, then this meal belongs to you. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet been baptized, we're so glad you're here. We just, wait you to, we just ask you to pause and wait on this meal until you've made, made that final decision and given yourself over to the Lord. And we'd be glad to talk to you about that and pray with you to help make that a possibility to usher you in to the grace and mercy of Jesus. Finally, the prayer room is open today. Prayer room is right through that, those doors over there where the curtains are. The curtains are open now. The prayer room is available. If you need prayer for anything, medical stuff, family stuff, uh, your own faith challenges, if you feel like the Lord's convicting you of something that you need to take a step into, the prayer room and the prayer team is there for you. They're not going to judge you. They're just going to pray for you. They are wonderful, gifted people. People in that room have prayed for me multiple times. It's been a, t- a great gift to me. I invite you to open yourself up to the gift of grace through prayer. Let me pray for us as we move now to our time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the amen, the faithful and true one who bears faithful witness to who the Father actually is, really is. Thank you that you're victorious and this meal represents your victory. And so you are knocking on the door and you're wanting to sit down and eat with us. And so we sit down and eat with you. We eat this meal with you and we worship you and we praise you. Lord, you wash away all sin. If there's anything that would block us from coming to this meal, would we surrender that to you? And then come joyfully to the table. The table of the amen, the victorious one. Lord, would you use common things to speak larger, deeper, spiritual realities. Make us open and soft to what you want to do with us here in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen.